Voice of the Martyrs is an international ministry that serves the persecuted church. Recently, I read a story that they made known, and I'd like to share it with you. On June 4th, so just last month, Hindu fanatics in Odisha State in India burst into the home of 16-year-old Samaru Madkami and kidnapped him. They then took Samaru and, another, and other Christian villagers that they had kidnapped to a wooded area. Although the other Christians managed to escape, the Hindus overpowered and killed Samaru, burying him nearby. Police arrested the killers the following day. Samaru and his family came to faith in Christ a few years ago, along with two other families. A visiting pastor had led worship for them on Sundays, but he eventually stopped visiting the village after local Hindus threatened him. After that, Samaru led worship for the group. This is the story of one faithful 16-year-old Christian boy who lost his life on earth for the sake of the Savior whom he loves. Last year, the BBC reported that Christians are the most persecuted religious group in the world, and that in some parts of the world, the systematic persecution of Christians has reached near-genocidal levels. Popular estimates hold that there's more Christian persecution now than at any other point in church history. And so it's no wonder, then, that our Lord addresses this head-on in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus spent the night in prayer before he came down and preached the Sermon on the Mount. And out of all of his disciples, he chose 12 whom he named apostles. And then he spent time healing many sick people before he sat down and preached this most famous sermon. He begins with the Beatitudes because these statements of blessing describe the kind of person whom Jesus had in mind when he preached the Sermon on the Mount. That is, he's describing the kind of person who has been born again through the gospel and now bears Christ-like character. He's describing the person who is saved by grace through faith in Christ. And if you would open scripture with me to Matthew chapter 5, we're going to read these Beatitudes one more time. And we're going to focus today on Matthew, 10 through, uh, Matthew 5, 10 through 12, which is the eighth and final beatitude. So beginning in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The culmination of the Christ-like life seen in the Beatitudes is persecution. So as Rick just read to us in Matthew 10, a moment ago, we see Jesus sending out the 12 with the gospel, just as he would later send out the church into all the world with the gospel. 
And he tells them plainly that they are being sent out as sheep among wolves and that their persecution for their Christian witness would be unavoidable because disciples are like their teacher. Our teacher is Jesus, who was persecuted to the utmost for our salvation. And if our Savior and Lord was persecuted as he lived the gospel, then it's only inevitable that we, his people, would be persecuted as we live in light of the gospel and as we preach that gospel. In this eighth beatitude in Matthew 5, 10 through 12, Jesus declares that his blessed ones are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And so we begin by considering what Christian persecution is as Jesus describes it here. And we see that Christian persecution takes many forms. In verse 11, He says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. Jesus describes Christian persecution in three ways here, as reviling, as persecution, and as uttering all kinds of false words. Two of these descriptions have to do with verbal assaults that are leveled against Christ's people. And so reviling is this idea of mockery and insult and harsh criticism, and it's demeaning and it's often done to your face. It might be a put-down or a joke at your expense at work because you won't participate in lewd conversation or gossip because you love Jesus and you're not going to go there. It looks like Senator Elizabeth Warren at the CNN Democratic LGBTQ presidential town hall in October, quipping that a man who holds to a biblical view of marriage as between one man and one woman for life is so messed up in his thinking that he might not even be able to find a woman who'd be willing to marry someone as messed up as he is. Any demeaning language, from harsh verbal abuse to lighthearted insult, is one form that Jesus tells us that persecution takes. Another is slander, uttering all kinds of evil falsely. That too may be to your face or it may be behind your back. Jesus faced slander at one of his trials. In Matthew 26, 59 and 60, we're told now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. Not much later, after the founding of the church, Stephen faced the same kind of false slander in Acts 6. And in Jesus' case, as well as in Stephen's, this slander led to their deaths. Jesus for our salvation, and Stephen's because of Jesus, whom he loved, who had saved him. When Jesus says, blessed are you when others persecute you, that's the kind of thing that he and Stephen both faced after their slander. He's referring to any kind of suffering, physically, emotionally, or economically, any unjust treatment at all, more than words. This might look contemporarily like the crushing death camps in North Korea where Christians for generations are being locked away simply because of their Christianity. This might look like a believer being passed over for a job or a promotion or a raise because he won't cut certain corners because of his Christian convictions and integrity. Or this could be a Christian nursing student being dismissed from her program because she refuses to participate in an abortion. Or a Christian doctor 
who has a lawsuit brought against him because he won't use the gender pronouns that are preferred for somebody whose biological sex is different from their so-called gender identity. It's the dear Christian brother of mine who was tied to a tree by Muslims and cut on his legs and left for dead because he was witnessing for Christ and wouldn't renounce his faith. This is persecution. In the early church, Christians were slandered and reviled because they would not say, Caesar is Lord. They were accused of atheism because they didn't worship a visible idol like everybody else. They were branded as unpatriotic because they wouldn't worship the emperor. They were ridiculed as being sexually immoral because of their love feasts or agape meals. They were called cannibals because of the Lord's Supper. So reviling, mockery, false words uttered evilly against them. By way of persecution, as Jesus said, these early Christians were often lit on fire as torches in Nero's gardens or sewn into animal skins and fed to wild dogs. They were crucified. And the point is that Christian persecution takes many forms, which range from mild verbal insult in the workplaces all around America to the murder of a 16-year-old Christian boy in India who led worship when the pastor stopped coming around, which I hope for any teenagers who are listening this morning, that you realize that right now your faith is as real as it should be when you're 50 or 75, that you take your faith so seriously that you, like that Christian boy when you are called upon, would give the utmost for the Lord that you love. Like the Apostle Paul experienced, sometimes this persecution can even come in the form of being ostracized by professing Christians in the church because there are more the immorality and false doctrines that they hold are exposed by genuine Christian faith. But wherever it is, and in whatever form it takes, Christian persecution is the intentional harassment of Christians on account of Christ. On account of Christ. And this is a crucial point if you're going to understand what Christian persecution is and what it's not. It must be on account of Christ. See, Jesus doesn't say blessed is every persecuted person, but those who are persecuted for for righteousness' sake who are persecuted on my account, he says. So Christian persecution is always on account of Christ. It's not persecution because of a political cause. It's not persecution that comes from wrongdoing. The Apostle Peter talks about this specifically. Allow me to read from 1 Peter 3 to you as he's talking to a church that was under severe persecution And he says to them in chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good than, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Christian persecution is always because of righteousness, never because of doing evil. It happens to those who honor Christ, not to those who are simply reaping the rewards of wrongdoing. Christian persecution is not persecution for being obnoxious. 
And make no mistake, there are many Christians running around being persecuted because they are more obnoxious than they are faithful to Christ. There is entirely possible to go about the work of sharing the gospel in a way that's abrasive and obnoxious and that is sure to bring reviling slander and persecution. Commentator R. Kent Hughes puts it this way. He says, sadly, Christians are very often persecuted not for their Christianity, but for lack of it. Sometimes they're rejected simply because they have unpleasing personalities. They're rude, insensitive, thoughtless, or piously obnoxious. Some are rejected because they're discerned as proud and judgmental. Others are disliked because they're lazy and irresponsible. Incompetence mixed with piety is sure to bring rejection. But Jesus, however, says that the only kind of persecuted person who is blessed is the Christian who is suffering for Christ's sake, not because they made their own bed and now are lying in it. This eighth beatitude is the culmination of all the other ones. And so understood in context, it's the meek and merciful, pure in heart and peacemaking person who's being persecuted because they bear the image of Jesus and the world can't handle it and they won't allow it. And they're harassed for their Christ-like righteousness because of their testimony for Jesus and their refusal to stop sharing Christ in a winsome way that still confronts people about their sins and calls them to repentance graciously. It's because the light of Christ's righteousness that's shining in their lives is an unwelcome presence for those who are living in darkness, which is exactly what the Apostle John tells us happened to Jesus, the light of the world, when he came and the darkness hated the light and sought to put it out. And so we come to understand that Christian persecution takes many forms and is always on account of Christ. And the third thing we see is that Christian persecution is the norm. It's the norm. I've argued throughout these sermons on the Beatitudes that the only way to understand the Beatitudes and the entire Sermon on the Mount is to understand that they are describing the normal Christian life. The normal life of somebody who has come to Christ in repentant faith and is following him. This isn't some superstar class of spirituality in the Christian life, but the basic Christian life of those who follow Jesus. Consider what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 12, not long before Paul's death. This was the last letter he wrote. And what he says is so plain and so clear that it's undeniable. He says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is the normal Christian life. And so I would say if you're listening to this sermon now and you're not identified as a Christian, if you're considering who Jesus is and considering following him, then know this. Following Jesus involves suffering and persecution in some degree. There's no two ways about it. Jesus doesn't give us the option of a Christianity devoid of it. But make no mistake, Jesus is utterly worth it. Consider your condition apart from Jesus, friend. Consider 
that the Bible describes you as being dead in your sins and trespasses, under the condemnation of God because his justice, the justice of a perfect and holy God demands of sinners like us that we be condemned and suffer in hell for eternity because of our sins, because we are infinitely guilty of sinning against a perfect and holy God. Consider that for sinners such as you and me, the sinless Son of God took on human flesh so that that flesh might be crucified in your place and mine so that we might have Christ's righteousness and eternal life. And when you consider that Jesus, who went to that extent for your salvation, I would ask you, is he worthy of the persecution that becomes his people? He is. Absolutely. He is worthy. And so I ask, will you believe in him? Will you believe in him? Christian brother or sister, I ask, will you consider this the normal Christian life? Have you thought often about this? As much as you professed faith in Christ and publicly declared in your baptism to follow him, you also publicly declared that you are united with him, not only in his resurrection, but in his persecutions, in his death. Christ himself in John 15, verses 18 through 20 said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The world hates you, brother or sister, because you were chosen by Jesus before the foundation of the world. We're slow to talk about persecution in America, and for good reason. We hear of the sufferings of persecuted believers in Iran or Nigeria or India, as I read to you earlier, and we're slow to identify anything we've gone through as persecution. And yet if what Jesus is saying here in this eighth beatitude is true, then the issue is not whether or not there is persecution, but what does that persecution look like when it happens? Because the world that Jesus said hates you, that world is as much here in the United States of America as it is in India, Africa, or the Middle East, as much as it is in China. Jesus has taught us in this beatitude that persecution takes the form of insults and mocking as well as more severe forms, such as physical torture which we don't experience in the United States so much. And yet here within the walls of our own Sun Valley Church, I know of stories of physical suffering and torture for the sake of Christ, as well as verbal criticism and mockery and other forms of persecution. And down in Oregon and here in our own Washington State, LGBT lawsuits against cake bakers and florists who are bound by their consciences in love for Jesus, that is persecution. And mark my words, with the rapid onset of secularization in the United States, we're only feeling the splash of ripples that will become waves as a faithful Christian witness is increasingly being shouted down in the public square. Lord, help us. But whatever form persecution for Christ takes, wherever it's found and whenever it comes, wherever it happens, how are we to respond as Christians? 
What does faithfulness to our Savior look like in the face of persecutions, whatever their form? Thankfully, Jesus tells us outright in verse 12. He says, rejoice and be glad. And I'll tell you, that's odd advice. It's actually not advice at all. It's a command. This is, these verbs are in, in the imperative. Rejoicing and being glad in persecution is no more optional for us than love your neighbor as yourself. And in case you were wondering, rejoicing and being glad are not referring to a settled joy that's always there, even when your emotions aren't anywhere near there. No, Jesus specifically, when he says rejoice and be glad, he's referring to your emotions. Literally, the command is to feel joy and happiness and to exult, to exult when persecution happens for the sake of Christ. Let me illustrate by showing the response of the apostles when they were brought before the Sanhedrin for preaching Christ. In Acts chapter 5, Luke says, When the Sanhedrin had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day, In the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. The apostles were beaten, and then they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for Christ. That's the beatitude in action. And that is the consistent and faithful testimony of the church through 2,000 years from that time. And take note that nowhere do we find the apostles rejoicing in the persecution itself. This is not some sick form of masochism that loves to be hurt simply so we could say, yay, we were persecuted. That's not what's happening here. That's never what's happening in faithful Christian endurance through persecution. Nor do we see in the New Testament Christians seeking persecution. That too is not what Jesus is saying. No, rather, People in the New Testament who are suffering for Jesus are suffering because they're seeking Jesus. They're following Jesus. And as they are following faithfully, persecution happens here and there. And when it does, even though it's hard and even in discouragement, as Paul sometimes felt, there's rejoicing and gladness. Which is so counterintuitive to our natural bent. So unnatural to us. And yet because of who Jesus is and the power of the Holy Spirit, it is entirely supernatural, which is the life we have in Christ. And so how can we possibly lead ourselves to feel happy when something so hard, so difficult, so taxing and hurtful comes upon us? Because friends, whatever the Bible is doing, is it's not commanding us to wishy-washy feel-goodism or to ignore the reality of suffering and to just paint on a happy face. No, we can't read the New Testament, especially the writings of Paul, the sufferings of Jesus, Peter's counsel to the persecuted church. We, we can't read those things and come away thinking that the Bible would have us just ignore the reality of these things in order to look happy. You see, as we listen to our Lord explain his command to rejoice and be glad, he gives two truths for us to anchor ourselves to and to consider if we're to lead our emotions in obedience to him in persecution. He says these two things are that there is a great reward and there is great company. We see that the reward of the Christian, the great reward who suffers persecution, is 
that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Even now in this world, the rule of Jesus, his lordship, his kingship, which is what the kingdom is, in the lives of his people, in and of itself is a very great reward. I mean, consider your life under the lordship of Jesus. Freedom from guilt, freedom from shame, forgiveness, fellowship with God. Consider to your life under the lordship of sin. The tyranny of self. Aren't you so rewarded to live with Jesus as Lord? And what ahead of Jesus at his return? What are the glories that you see when you consider the day, the kingdom of heaven yet to come? And so Paul says that this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Beyond all comparison. You see, just as the Lord graciously saves us, he graciously gives eternal blessing to those whom he preserves through persecution. We can rejoice and be glad because there is great reward. And Jesus also says that those who are persecuted for his sake are in great company. The company of the prophets in particular, who, he says, were also persecuted as you are. Go back to the very first family. Abel was murdered by Cain because Abel was righteous and Cain couldn't bear it. Noah was mocked for his faith. Moses was run out of Egypt for standing up for God's people. And then when he led them, God's people out of Egypt, then God's people turned on Moses because they didn't like what he was up to as a righteous man. David was chased in the wilderness. Jeremiah was thrown into a cistern. The prophets were relentlessly reviled. Micaiah was thrown in prison. And the author of Hebrews writes, others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. That is the great company of the persecuted. And above all, those who suffer insults or slander or assault for Jesus are in no greater company than the Lord himself. We're told in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 14, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And so whenever persecution comes, in whatever form, Christians can rejoice for Jesus' sake as they look to Jesus' presence. They can rejoice for Jesus' sake as they look to Jesus' presence. And so how do Christians prepare for persecution? What does it look like to prepare for persecution as part of the underground church in communist China? or for conservative evangelical churches to stare down the double barrel of secular humanism in the culture and theological liberalism from mainline Protestant denominations on the other. Whether in North Korea or North Carolina or at Sun Valley Church, how do Christians prepare for the persecution that Jesus promised will come to all who are faithfully following him? 
at some point in some form, how do you prepare for that? And I would briefly suggest five biblical ways to be ready always for the day when persecution comes. Whether that's tomorrow at work or when the tide of the sexual revolution sweeps into the local church with the full force of United States law behind it. But before I conclude with these five exhortations, I need to mention the unique position that we're in as American Christians. You see, winsomely loving our neighbors as ourselves and graciously testifying to Jesus does not mean lying down under the loud, angry voices of secularism demanding that the church be silent. Do you hear me? Winsomely sharing Christ, loving your neighbor as yourself, and being faithful does not mean silently lying down as the angry voices of secularism are shouting for the church to be silent. That is not what being faithful in persecution means. We can, and in fact, we must be faithful Christians living in this republic by advocating for the preservation of religious liberty in a time when that liberty is being redefined. The very liberty that has given us the, pre- the freedom to preach the gospel in the public square is this day being redefined in ways that we cannot, insofar as we have a voice as American citizens, allow. Listen to Albert Muller's conclusion in his book, The Gathering Storm as he traces all of this and where it's going, where it's gone, and what we are to do, he says this at the end. He says, we must defend the right to believe in enough theology to get us into trouble with anyone anywhere in the secular age. We must defend the right of Christians, along with all other believers, to be faithful in the public square as well as in the privacy of our own homes, hearts, and churches. We must defend the right to teach our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We must defend the rights of Christian schools to be Christian and to order our institutions around the word of God without fearing the crushing power of the state. We must defend the right of generations of those yet unborn to know the liberties we have known and now defend. These are days that will require courage, conviction, and clarity of vision. We are in a fight for the most basic liberties God has given humanity, every single one of us, made in his image. So we can exercise our voices as citizens of this nation in order to preserve our freedom to worship and witness as God calls us to. And we can exercise that voice in a Christ-centered, God-glorifying, gracious, winsome way that is not obnoxious and yet is steadfast and immovable. But if, if in God's sovereign purpose, those liberties that defend our rights to preach the gospel in the public square are taken from us, if it becomes illegal to be faithful to the scriptures, then we may yet be faithful and rejoice and be glad under the weight of persecution, whatever form that takes. And so I leave you with five ways to prepare for that day should it come, with five ways to prepare for work tomorrow, for five ways to prepare for sharing the gospel next week when there's hostile reaction, insult, and slander thrown your way. The first is this, know and treasure Christ. Know and treasure Christ above all. Christian persecution is persecution for the sake of Jesus Christ. 
And if it's for his sake, then the best possible way you can prepare for it is to know and treasure Jesus above all things. And in our call to confession, you heard Jesus say, whoever would lose his life for my sake will find it. Are you convinced of the beauty and the worth and the glory of Jesus? Because if you're not, you will not remain steadfast for his sake. But if you know the Lord, if you press on into prayer, if you press into the study of God's perfections, then you will stand firm because you know the Lord for whom you stand and in whom you stand. Don't look at persecution and wonder how you'll make it through. Look at Jesus and see his love for you as his mangled body hangs on a cross for you and then is risen from the dead for you and is seated at the right hand of God for you and is sustaining you and interceding for you. See Jesus, know him, treasure him, and you will endure. And I would say know and treasure the Bible. Know and treasure the Bible. If you are to know and treasure Jesus, you must know and treasure his Bible. Psalm 119 verse 11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So would you obey Christ's command to rejoice and be glad in persecution? And then know and treasure his word. Meditate on his glorious promises to those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. The crown of life, the great reward, eternal life. Treasure up the stories of the saints who faithfully were preserved by God through suffering. The Spirit will use those stories, use those promises, use those truths to steal your heart for the day when you need them most. Know and treasure Jesus, know and treasure the Bible, And know and pray for the persecuted church. This is the third thing I would exhort you to. So as we worship this morning, saints around the world are being systematically hunted down for the very same faith we profess. Very same faith. Learn their names. Know their stories and pray for them. Pray for them regularly at family worship that your children might know what following Christ means in this world. Sign up for prayer updates with Voice of the Martyrs. Read about the persecuted church at Open Doors USA. The faithfulness of God in his people today will bolster your faith and faithfulness tomorrow. And fourth, I would say know and practice righteousness. Commit yourself to holiness. Know and practice righteousness because it is blessed are the persecuted for righteousness' sake on account of Jesus Are you living a Christian life worth persecuting? Or is the world all too happy to let you slip by because you don't look that much different? If you never face any opposition for your faith from anyone, you must examine whether you're living a distinctly Christian life. Are you sharing Christ with the lost? The lost typically don't enjoy that, and yet Christ would have us do it for their salvation. The Lord knows who are his. Are you refusing to join in gossip or sexual banter? Are you standing up because of your Christian faith against the injustices that are around you? Are you an active peacemaker everywhere you go? Look through your Bible for what practical righteousness looks like. In fact, that's what the whole Sermon on the Mount is all about. Practical righteousness, faithfulness to Jesus lived out in holiness. And if persecution comes for the sake of Jesus but you've been unconcerned about living like Jesus, then don't, be, then don't be surprised when you buckle under the pressure of it. 
But if you would seek for holiness and practice righteousness, you will be able to rejoice and be glad. And finally, you may wonder with fear whether you'll ever be able to stand strong persecution. It may even keep you awake at night, wondering what may happen and whether you would be able to stand with Jesus. I would say know that God's grace is sufficient. Know that his grace is sufficient. I would counsel you to consume yourself with Jesus today, not with the possibility of what may happen tomorrow. God does not give you grace for what hasn't happened, but he does give you grace for today, what's happening now. So you don't have the strength to withstand tomorrow's trials, but you have his sufficient grace in your weakness now. Paul suffered from a very troublesome, what he called a thorn, to the point where he pleaded with Jesus three times to take it away. And Jesus' answer to Paul is his promise to you when you are weak and you're uncertain that you can walk with him through the most severe persecution. He said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. His power is made perfect in weakness. Not before, not after, in it. Lean in heavy to Jesus in his sufficient grace. Those who follow Christ will be persecuted. But don't fear. You can rejoice in persecution for Jesus' sake as you look to Jesus' presence. Let's come before his presence now in prayer. Oh Lord, we are so small, so weak, so frail. And you are so great, so strong, so sufficient. You are our sufficient, perfect Savior who made an end of our sins, who has woken us out of the slumber of spiritual death and given us spiritual life. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, strengthen us in the glorious gospel that Jesus lived for us that we may live as your faithful people in light of that gospel, proclaiming that gospel and enduring whatever persecution comes, whenever it comes and however it comes, for the sake of the gospel. We, we are utterly insufficient for this. We may tremble and fear at the severity of what may happen, even as at this very moment, brothers and sisters around the world and other parts of the globe are trembling under the weight and the pain and the anguish physically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally of what they are suffering now for Christ's sake. Oh Lord, lift them up, bear them through this, deliver them, we pray, and strengthen us as your people for whatever it is that in your good and perfect purposes you have ordained for us that we may walk with you always in faithfulness, enduring what in ourselves we could never endure, and all to show your worth and glory until that great day when persecution will be no more, when you are reigning and we with you. In Jesus, amen.